everyone and welcome back to Design to Connect. If you're new to Design to Connect, um, this podcast is all about questioning and critiquing our current ways of uh, looking at architecture and practicing architecture. And our season two is mainly focusing on cities, the future of cities, different aspects of cities, and of course, connecting with people who are using their design understanding to improve the situation of their cities and really to create a positive impact. Our today's guest is working on a topic that a lot of you must have heard about. Uh, this uh, idea is the 20 minute neighborhoods. Uh, I remembered from the first time that I heard about it, uh, I heard about this idea. I really fell in love with it and I can't wait to learn uh, truly about this topic, not just uh, read LinkedIn uh, posts about it from our today's guest, Gemma Hyde. Uh, Gemma's work focuses on supporting local authorities and other organizations to create healthier, active environments, which includes promoting and supporting implementation of TCPA's 20-Minute Neighborhood Guide and its wider work on reuniting health with planning. Uh, Gemma has a master's in urban planning and rural planning, and she has a postgraduate diploma in public health. And she has had experiences working as a planner and also working with uh, local governments and uh, non-governmental organizations in planning and public health. I'm really happy to have you here, Gemma. Welcome. Uh -oh. Thank you very much. It's really good to be here. Great. So how are you today? How's everything? Okay, all right today. The sun's come back out, so that's quite nice. And uh, almost the end of the week as well, which is also a bit of a bonus. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I completely forgot about it. Yeah. Looking forward <laughs> to the weekend, really. Okay, uh, so just to start, um, I wanted to ask you about your current role in TCPA. Can you maybe start with telling us a little bit about the Garden Cities, the idea of the 20-minute neighborhood, and what are their positive impacts on our health, on our economy, and our life in general? Sure. Um, so, um, as you mentioned, I work for the Town and Country Planning Association. So we're a, a charity. We've been around for a, quite a long time, um, over 100 years. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so, uh, yeah, been in this space for a long time. Um, and we were founded by Ebenezer Howard. And he wrote uh, back in 1898, he wrote uh, quite an important piece of uh, writing from our point of view called Tomorrow, A Peaceful Path to Real Reform. And he was a, uh, a you know, real, really a social reformer, um, but a very sort of practical idealist. And he got interested in how the environments that we live in sort of shape and affect um, people's health. And he was very concerned about um, with the industrialization um, in the sort of late Victorian era and how lots of people were living really unhealthy lives in crowded cities with a lack of good housing options and all the sort of environmental pollution from um, factories. And he was you know, thinking, well, actually, there must be a better way of sort of creating places for people to live that support their health and make them happy. Um, and so he he founded what was then the Garden Cities Association um, and has then subsequently become the Town and Country Planning Association. Um, and my role is really focused around healthier placemaking. Okay. So I work, um, well, as you mentioned, really, I work on 
sort of supporting local authorities in um, England mostly, um, thinking about health and wellbeing and planning policy and how that fits together, um, but then also around this 20-minute neighbourhood concept. Um, so we launched our guide to 20-minute neighbourhoods back in 2021, and that was you know, really in response to COVID, and that's the first time or probably a few times that that word's going to come up, but um, it was that response to... A, we couldn't go around doing our normal work because local authorities were very busy doing COVID response. So we had a bit of time on our hands all of a sudden to do something else or to apply some research and thought to something else. Um, and we'd been aware of the 20 minute neighborhood concept or the 15 minute city concept. Um, and uh, suddenly as well, because of lockdowns, uh, lots of people were being forced to live locally in a way that they had never done before. And so it just seemed like a really great opportunity to look at this um, sort of concept and see how it might apply specifically in the English planning context and try and do the research. You know, we talked to Australia, we talked to Melbourne, we talked to Paris, we talked to Portland and Oregon. So we really want to try and learn some lessons and then see how that, that might translate into the, the English context. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I do. So it's a lot of... Um, it's still a lot of promotion and talking to people. It's quite a young concept um, in England, particularly. And so there's lots of authorities and people interested in it, huge amounts of interest. Um, and lots of people sort of looking at it and trying to figure out what it means for them and their place. Um, and sort of we're beginning to see policy come forward. Um, yeah. And so that's sort of where we've, we've really got to with, you know, how... How that could work here um, at, at every level. So thinking about how that might work at national policy level, and Scotland has certainly forged the way in that regard um, with their national planning framework four, which explicitly mentions twenty-minute neighbourhoods. Mm. The English planning national context is a bit messier, um, but you know there may be opportunities to to push harder for for something like the twenty-minute neighbourhood concept to, to be put into place. Um, and then we work with local authorities. And we also work with quite a lot of community groups who really resonate with the idea, a bit like you were saying, you know, it it's sort of fascinating and, and intuitively makes sense to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, so there's also there's this sort of top down approach, but there's definitely a bottom up approach as well. And people really see how it fits together with other things they care about, like climate change, like biodiversity. And it's bringing all those ideas um, into under one umbrella or into one framework that that people might be able to then think about and implement at a local level. Great. And if for for our listeners that they don't know about the twenty minute neighborhood, can you explain it in like a paragraph or a couple of sentences? Sure. So we often refer to it as complete, compact, and connected places. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of creating or thinking about place um, as somewhere you could choose, genuinely choose to live locally more of the time. So that means you've got to be able to easily access, you know, a range of everyday services and facilities that you might need. Um, and then how you access those is preferably going to be through some sort of more active travel mode. So walking, wheeling of any kind, cycling. And those places need to then be connected so they need to be compact in sort of close enough together that that can be an easy journey mm -hmm. and then connected with the right kind of routes that are also 
interesting and green and fun. And it just becomes the easy choice. You know, it's it's the no-brainer choice to actually go, oh, actually, I need to go and do that. And I don't need to get in my car. I don't even think about getting in my car to do that because I know I can get there and it will be pleasant. And I might bump into my neighbor on the way and the kids can stop at the park for a couple of minutes. It's it's that, you know, it's just making it that sort of, um, sort of easy place to, to be and to live without having to default to the car, which in a lot of a lot of places in England, there isn't that choice. So it really is. And that's what we focus on. It is increasing choice um, rather than some of the other rhetoric that has come along with the concept of late. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, saw, I've seen the, the posts coming and yeah. Uh, so if if we were to, to actually make this 20-minute uh, neighbourhood idea happen, uh, what are some things that need to be done in the policy level, in cultural level, and let's say awareness raising in education, and also at design level for us to reach to this model in a city, let's say, scale? Um, so I, I, you asked me a question initially, and I sort of didn't answer it, but we, we started off thinking about garden city principles, um, which is where the TCPA sort of comes from. Um, and and those principles um, are essentially you know, ingredients or, or um, the, the bare bones, like a framework or the bones of, a, of what you might need to consider to make a good place. And 20 minute neighbourhoods springs from very much the same sort of well in terms of it's thinking about a place very holistically um, and thinking about the different things that help people have a good life um, and and benefit from where they live um, and not be um, deprived or affected negatively by, by the environment they, they find themselves living in. Um, and a lot of them are going to be extremely familiar to any urban designer or planner. You know, we know these things. We know that actually it's much better to have green infrastructure you know, trees and plants that you can see from your doorstep and parks that you can walk to and get to and enjoy easily. Um, so we know a lot of these sort of benefits um, to people's health and well-being from, from good placemaking. You know, it's nothing new. You know, it really, it's nothing new. Um, it's just got a slightly different label. So it is about that physical good design mm-hmm. um, and making sure that we think about that and especially think about that in terms of designing places for all ages and and mm-hmm. everybody, and not just perhaps some of the uh, default assumptions that we've made um, about what a place should should be like, you know, historically, um, and because of who was in the professions that sort of make these decisions. Um, so there is that sort of physical good design aspect, but then there's definitely some sort of what we called in our guide sort of principles for success, and that is around political leadership. It's around having a vision, telling a really good story about what you're trying to do. Um, It is most definitely, and perhaps I should have started with it, but it's about co-production and community engagement in a way that's not tokenistic. It's actually truly, if you've got a place, starting with, you know, what do the people who live there and experience it day to day, what do they want and need rather than what? us looking in thinks that they want and need um 
And then, you know, it's around uh, collaboration and partnership. It's around investment. There's definitely something around policy um, and having the sort of policy levers that you can pull that sort of get people to think about these things. But yeah, it, it's definitely more than just good design. Um, yeah, it, that implementation piece is, is tricky. Um, and it's definitely tricky in the context that we, we find ourselves in at the moment in terms of um, national policy, which is causing quite a lot of hesitation around planning in England. Um, and also there isn't, you know, we don't have a true purpose for planning in this country. It's not set out nationally that that planning should be creating places that maintain and improve health. That's not written down anywhere. And we've got slightly sidetracked recently with well, places should be beautiful. Well, okay, that's that sounds great. And you know, lots of people actually, when they're thinking about garden cities, will think, well, I'm sure they're, you know, they're, they're green and lovely and beautiful to look at. But it's so much more than that. You know, beauty isn't isn't enough, let alone how do we define it in the first place. Um, so, yeah, it's really about, you know, all of those other things around implementation. And then it is also about you can't just build something and walk away and expect it that people will change their behaviour. Yeah. Um, you know, you might build an incredible cycle network, but if you're also building apartments that have no cycle storage, if you've also got school children who don't know how to ride a bike, you've got people who can't afford to buy or maintain a bike, it's it's not good enough. You know, the, the, the beautiful cycleway will sit there unused. So it is definitely about activation as well. And I think some of these things, you know, we quickly get away from planning and design and architecture. And so that can be a struggle for some people to sort of go, well, I can do this bit, but that bit's beyond my remit. And that's why that collaboration is so, so important. Very true. Um, and like, if we want to say, uh, talk about like the relationship between the 20 million neighborhoods or 15 million cities and the resilience of the communities that live inside them how would that work like let's say if there was to be another pandemic hitting or let's say in facing the the issues that come with the climate change how would a 20 minute neighborhood differ from a normal today mainstream neighborhood yeah that, that's a really interesting question um i think for me i would probably bring it back to connection so you know, being well connected physically and socially with your community um, would make it easier for people and communities to cope with sort of challenges. And it increases people's opportunity to have networks and to access support. Um, and I think we regained some of that in COVID, actually. I mean, there are lots of wonderful stories about, you know, communities almost re-establishing connection that had been lost. Um, and so if you've got people that are spending more time locally and and there is just something about if you're going to get out and walk somewhere, you are going to bump into your neighbours. And that might just be a smile, but actually it might also be a conversation um, and the relationships that grow out of that and the, the recognising, you know, that other people have needs and that you you might be able to help or be helped by your neighbours and is, you know, is really important. Um, 
So I think that's probably how I see it. I think there's potentially another element to that as well in that one of the features that we've put in our 20-minute neighbourhood ingredients list is around keeping jobs and money local. Mm. And there's definitely something about money staying more local to, to where people are. And it's that support of local businesses, you know, probably independent businesses. So if you've got your, your little independent coffee shop in your neighbourhood mm. um, or an independent shop of some kind, then you know, that money stays local and, and the owners of that shop, you know, send their children or pay for their children to attend the sports club. And then the people who run the sports yeah. club, you know, it's it's all much more of a circular economy in a, in a local area. And I think that also helps to connect people and, and you know, people can stay, be more resilient to challenge, mm-hmm. um, potentially. So true. Oh, that was nice. <laughs> And uh, can you tell us about also the effects of uh, 20-minute neighborhoods on the isolation of certain groups? Because right now how the cities, especially big cities, work is that sometimes like certain groups, certain socioeconomic backgrounds are living in similar neighborhoods that sometimes because of that, let's say, concentration, the safety of uh, spaces is decreased. For example, we always hear, especially in big cities, don't go to that neighborhood at night, don't walk there alone at night, Uh, it's not safe. So would 20-minute neighborhood model be able to increase safety in those areas? And if yes, how would would that look like? And if if no, uh, would it, would it, lead to more isolation or segregation within the city how how would that be <laughs> yeah it's an interesting one because there's definitely a difference between retrofitting an idea like this into an existing place um versus if you've got a nice you know open greenfield site somewhere and you can yeah. plan from the very beginning so obviously i think if you're planning from scratch then that sort of mixture of housing type and tenure um and increasing the ideas around things like intergenerational housing mm-hmm. um you can plan those in um from the very beginning i think where you're retrofitting and maybe you've got some of those existing challenges um it's around taking the opportunities for redevelopment when they come so actually quite a lot of big regeneration projects are great great opportunities for a concept like this to sort of be thought about and used as a as an organizing principle or a framework um and, and thinking about or how you might respond um i think there's something about um the ability to take spaces that maybe feel unsafe um and then increasing their safety or the perception of their safety in terms of their use and and the frequency of their use and who's using them so let me try and unpack that a little bit. Um, so it's about actually if we're having neighbourhoods, there might be sort of a more m- mix of uses that maybe yeah. extend. So maybe you've got a co-working space and you've also got sort of um, shops and uh, sort of leisure facilities of some kind and even public squares or village greens, you know, in it, and it's making those spaces inviting so that you get a mix of users that come along of all ages and will spend you know varying amounts of time 
um, in the spaces and therefore they feel um, safer because there's more people there and, and you know that you've, you've got more observers um, and there's more uh, types of activity going on. So there's sort of just people getting on with everyday chores and tasks and then there's the people who have just sat down to take a few minutes to enjoy you know the people watching opportunities and the um and resting or enjoying that space from a from a mental health point of view and i think it's it's developing spaces more in that direction housing and this area is only for um you know maybe it's got some shops in it or it's more industrial the industrial one's slightly different but you know it's just yeah. having a, a, a mixture uh, and people mixing as much as the uses yeah. being mixed um and then you've also got you know the temporary uses so you might have a market that's there on a certain day of the week or you might have um sort of uh things like community libraries of things or pop-up mm -hmm. spaces that also just bring a place alive in a in a different way um so that people are there um and I think in terms of the the segregation point, um, it's it's difficult sometimes to break some of those things down. But there is some research around parks in particular being a great place to start because people go to enjoy the space and just sort of share the space together. Um, and it's um, you know, it's it's the opportunity to to create a bit more variation um, and to potentially decrease inequality. And I think that's where a lot of the um, fault lines lie, really. And it's being driven by by the inequality that we have within our society. And so actually, yeah. if we can make it so that actually housing is a good quality for everybody, then it's less of an issue. And then it's those sorts of things. That, I mean, there's it's a whole systemic yeah thing to look at but you know it, it it is this sort of decreasing inequality um and decrease in segregation and if you start you know say you've got the opportunity to do some things if you start in the most deprived areas then not only do you stand have the greatest gains um but then you also start to improve things for everybody um at the same time so yeah it's definitely it's definitely tricky and it's not um it's not perfect and you do run the risk of potentially gentrification um and other challenges um around that where you sort of you start to improve somewhere and then the house prices rise so it's there's it's got to be this whole systems approach otherwise you're not you know you're going to have unintended con consequences and um, have communities that potentially feel sort of pushed out etc so yeah you can't go into that naively yeah that's true yeah we we can't also look at it in a vacuum as you say yeah. it's the, it's a whole system change that right now almost not not any part of it is working so no, no. Yeah, not any model can save the whole thing it has to go together definitely and uh, i i wanted to ask you also about the future of work like how the 15 minute neighborhood would would look i mean how the future of work would look in a 15 minute 20 minute neighborhood uh because right now it's true that a lot of jobs are done online a lot of and you can have local businesses if that's what you do but if not 
uh, and I know that the idea of 20 minute neighborhood, it, do, it doesn't mean that you cannot get out of your neighborhood, but would, is there a, a thought that has been put to this? Like, is there a relationship between the future of work and these kind of, these models of cities and neighborhoods? Yeah, I think it has quite a few sort of interesting ideas um, that, that could be explored. I think probably you're right. The first thing to actually say is not everybody can work at home or close to their home. And so a key part to, to all of our work is to keep talking about the need for reliable, affordable public transport. Um, and a big part of 20 minute neighbourhood wider city or wider region is about that transport link and making sure it's it's right and and the shift the modal shift required because of uh, the need to respond to climate change. Um, so there's definitely a big um, you know strand of work that needs to be done around public transport and we must take that seriously because otherwise you know the idea that we're suggesting to someone who has to go to work somewhere that they're going to stay in the neighborhood or they're going to cycle and it's all going to be you know daisies and roses um it's just unrealistic and, and it turns them off from the idea in its entirety so it is important that we bear in mind that not everyone can work from home um but i think there are some also uh, some you know, interesting thoughts going on for businesses in terms of uh, the effect of home working if they have a large headquarter office somewhere and whether or not you um, create satellite offices, which would be more located in 20 minute neighbourhoods or sort of closer to people's mm -hmm. homes. I think there are some interesting thoughts around um, Uh, a company takes out a gym membership for its team and so you can go and access co-working spaces that might be closer to home um you know, because equally not everyone's home is really conducive to working at home um and for all sorts of different reasons you know um that might just be that you don't have the space or that it's being shared with um with others who need the space for a lot of people, their home working setups actually are not good for them from a you know muscular musculoskeletal point of view. Um, <laughs> so they, there's lots to you know it, it can often be sort of framed as well. Home working is absolutely wonderful, um, but it's not wonderful for everybody all the time. Yeah. So I do think that there are some some ways that companies are beginning to think about this, um, and also therefore beginning to think about how they diversify what they do with their big offices you know mm. um because and, and the effect of that on high streets and office um and commercial sort of parks and things like that so there's lots of work to be done really um and there's also a bit of waiting to see how it all plays out still i think you know we sort of we, our collective memory of covid is sort of faded quite fast in a way and i yeah. think some of the dust is still settling really on on how people choose to work um, and what that's going to look like but I think the other part of that too is that companies are thinking about their climate impacts and if they're asking people to travel to work well that has climate impact and so they're also thinking about you know from a from a corporate responsibility point of view mm. how can they better support you know so that people aren't having to drive in um, and support people's sort of Health, health and well-being mental health and well-being too 
um, if they want to sort of work from home or have a better sort of balance around school pickups and you know it's opened lots and lots of conversations in that regard so again it's it's much less about something that we might do from a built environment perspective but it maybe is something that we need to be thinking about from a house design point of view so can we build in flex more flexibility within homes to be able to cope with um, changing needs over a life course and that might include the ability have a work from home space uh, at some point um but then also um you know uses of buildings and and how flexible can we be in a way that still sort of provides oversight and protection but how flexible can we be in terms of what building can be used for um, and responding perhaps slightly more in a more agile way to, to changes in sort of society and culture thank you and um as as you have a master's also in both rural and urban planning uh i wanted to ask you about the difference between the 20 minute neighborhood idea in a rural setting and an urban setting is there a difference and how would it look like yeah i think there is a difference so ever since we uh launched the guide every time i've ever spoken about it somebody always says but what about rural places and we did sort of start to think about it in the guide um but there's definitely um some some more work to be to be done on that i think people can see it more quickly in an urban setting mm-hmm. so because a lot of actually if you live in a city a lot of cities will already really be 15 minute cities or 20 minute neighborhoods You could argue that London is made up of a whole bunch of 20 minute Mm. neighbourhoods. And so if if you're in that context and you get to choose, actually, from a whole host of different ones that you might be able to get to quite quickly and easily. um, You know, we could work on how you get there and and cycle lanes and and taking some of the cars out. But it sort of makes sense in that context. Um, I think in rural areas, there's just a different set of challenges. Um, I think one of the most immediate basic challenges is actually the language. So if you live in a village, you probably don't consider yourself a neighbourhood. And you certainly, you know, you hear the 15 minute city concept and you think, well, that's not for me because I live in a village. Um, so there's an immediately some some language around that that probably needs to be looked at. Um, and that might be that you start to talk about communities rather than neighbourhoods. So it's just this, it's simple, but it's actually quite effective to keep the conversation going. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's going to be about, well, it's not realistic to think that every small rural place can support a whole list of services and facilities that people mm-hmm. might want. Yeah. So how do we do that differently? And it might be. It might be that you have a nearby market town. And so the expectation is that people will travel to the market town and they might have to do that by car because rural public transport is probably even worse than anything else. Um, so, yes, we should improve that. But let's also be realistic in the short term. Yeah. So it might be that you travel to the market town and once you're in the market town, that's your 20 minute town. you know, And you can then get out of your car and walk and have a pleasant time doing all your chores and accessing the things that you want to do whilst you're there Um, another way of looking at it might be to try and form clusters of settlements 
And so you look to improve the connections between those settlements. Um, and then, you know, it might be that your early years nursery is in one settlement, yeah. but your dentist is in another and your, um, you know, your your shop, your farm shop is in another. But but we make it, we focus on making it easier to travel between them. Um, and there's quite a bit of work actually going on around that. And that's interesting because obviously you get into land ownership if you want to create new connections. Um, and there's a whole thing around country roads and how they aren't conducive to walking and cycling, even horse riding, because, you know, they're fast and they're narrow and bendy and they don't feel safe and they're not lit and all those sorts of things. So it's just a whole bunch of different challenges around that. And then the other way of looking at it is to go, well, rather than moving people to the service, can we take the service to the people? Yeah. So it's the it's the direction of the transaction. And we have lots of examples of that already. So in England, you know, you'll, you'll have a mobile library service. So the yeah. library's in a van and the van goes to the village. We don't expect everybody to get in their car to drive to the library in the town. Um, and there are lots of ways you might explore that with all sorts of different services. So it might be um, sort of, um, some sort of health service, GP service. It might be the post office. It's mobile banks. And it's sort of just thinking about it in a really, it, it's the chance to innovate actually in quite an exciting way. Yeah. Um, and often, once you've done those things, you might find that you can reapply them to urban contexts. So in Somerset, there's a, a micro provider scheme that links local carers with local people who need care. Um, and what that does is it means that you've got local connection. You have better relationships between uh, the people who sort of need support and the carers. And it means the carers don't drive as far because they haven't got to drive a long distance to get to all of their clients. Mm. And actually, that's that sort of scheme could work equally well inside a city as yeah. it does out in a rural context. So I think we'll see a lot more innovation in this space um, coming up. And if I may plug, we've got a webinar about this very thing about rural places and rural expressions of 20 minute neighbourhoods um, on the 29th of June, um, okay. which is free to attend. So if anyone wants to join us, they're very welcome. That's great. OK, 29th of June. I yeah. That is what will be asked before that. <laughs> yeah. If not, well, if not, then uh, the recording will be on our website afterwards. So uh, people okay. can always go to the website and catch up. So that's fine. Great. Okay. Before posting, I'm going to ask you about the link of that. Great. Thank you for, for sharing it. So uh, now that we talked a little bit about the 20 minute neighborhood, I wanted to focus a little bit about on the back, your background on health. Uh, so I it, I, it seemed to me such an interesting intersection of experiences and expertises. So I wanted to ask you, why did you decide to kind of become expert in these two points and how your background in public health is helping you with the work that you're doing right now? Um, I, I'm flattered that you think I had some grand plan. <laughs> what happened was really I, I started in public health and fell into planning is how I, okay. <laughs> is how I describe it to people. So, um, yes, yeah, so I was interested in public health from, well, yeah, 
fairly early on when I started sort of my working career. Um, I sort of first met a public health practitioner back in about 2001. Um, and I was just fascinated by their approach to thinking about prevention um, and how sort of how transformational prevention could be if we would grapple it and we would grasp it and and really run with it. Um, and so I, I sort of became interested in in health, but from that point of view. Um, and there's a, a book called um, Health is Made at Home and Hospital is for Repairs. And I think that really sort of sums it up. That's by Nigel Crisp, who's been involved with the TCPA. But, you know, we're, we're far too used to the healthcare system sort of patching us up and sending us back out. But actually, the environment is such a key determinant of health um, that it's it's just not it doesn't make sense. You know, we throw all of this money at healthcare um, and and treating people when they've become unwell. But prevention for me is just is so key. Um, and so I yeah started off in public health, um, and then because of this sort of focus for me on the on the environment and the built environment. When it came, I had the opportunity to to work uh, for a planning consultancy, um, and they encouraged me to think about my planning degree. And I went off to planning school and uh, basically spent all of my time writing public health essays because that's you know that's what resonated with me. So whenever the topic came up, that would be the lens that automatically I would sort of apply to to the issue. Um, and so you know it was really important. And I loved it. You know, I, I really, I do really love it. And I love my job, which is very, you know, very uh, fortunate place to be. Um, but what my sort of two backgrounds bring me, I guess, is um, I, I can sort of sit in the middle a bit. And I have, you know, I can sort of broker and translate between the two. Um, because they both have their strengths. Yeah. They both, you know, the professionals in both disciplines have certain ways of working normally and, and use language in a certain way. And so yeah. actually it's about helping them understand each other's worlds a bit more and what, what they can and can't do. So when I work with local authorities, quite often um, the people that call us in um, are the public health team because they realise that prevention and the built environment um, are really important determinants of health and they want to talk to their planners and influence planning policy but they don't necessarily quite know how to do it um, and so we get to sort of convene the, the two groups and then often it spills out into even more because as we've talked about already you know planning and the, and the built environment is actually so much more than planning um, and it requires all these sort of other sort of collaborations if you're going to sort of make it make it work um, but yeah, so that's what I that's what I get to do, really. And if you think about it, you know, public health and planning come from the same root. You know, they both developed in response um, to environmental health issues around uh, poor, poor, air, uh, poor air quality, poor water quality issues with um, sewage in cities. Mm. And and it was about sort of how do we create places that actually support and and maintain and improve people's health. So they they sort of 
you know, started off as sort of sibling disciplines and then they sort of diverged. And I think now they're sort of coming back together, really, and understanding that they have this you know, symbiotic relationship and, and ability to influence each other. Interesting. And if you think like for, for someone who is studying architecture or planning or urban design, if they just study that, what are the things that they might be blind to when it comes to creating healthier places? Um, I think it's quite easy to default to some certain comfortable subjects if you're from that background. So there's healthcare and healthcare facilities, and and often that's you know, when people say health, that's what they immediately think of. Um, and then if you push them a bit further, then you might get to the to the what we might call the low hanging fruit. So active travel mm. um, and air quality and things that are still sort of very familiar but when you push it out towards things like mental health and um social building social cohesiveness and connection um and even things like the food environment they don't necessarily come naturally as as topics that you've been taught or things that you would that you would be able to necessarily quickly and logically join the dots between what you do and those things. And I think that's sometimes the bits that's probably still missing in our education around planning and urban design. I think it's definitely improving, but I do think there's still quite a lot more that could be done um, just to expose people to some of this thinking and some of the things, some of these links and actually how these interactions um, and interrelationships that, that could be affected so that we're thinking about it, you know, we're thinking about it when we design something, or we're thinking about it if you're a development management planner and somebody's applied to do something, and you you have the ability to critically apply thinking around health um, in its broadest sense to to what you're looking at and and the potential implications of that. Um, but then also completely and utterly having the confidence to go to your public health team and say, actually, I'm not sure about this. You're the experts because <laughs> we yeah. can't expect every planner or every designer to be a public health expert. Um, so it's about utilising those, having those relationships and really utilising yeah. them. Yeah. I, I, I actually wanted to exactly ask you this, like how, what kind of partnerships need to be made or who should planners talk to in order to make healthier places? like. Who, who do you think should be on the table? Or the... <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, the uh, the slightly glib answer is everybody. <laughs> so, you know, I know, but you know, to to steal from uh, Hollywood, I have a bit of a thing now for saying everything, everywhere, all at once, and I do just really feel like you know the the more voices and expertise you can have around the table, the better. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, yes, there has to be a practical working out of that. You know, so I'm not, I'm, I'm not being naive, um, but we really do, you know, have the opportunity to do a lot better. But we need to just accept that the things that we're trying, the problems we're trying to solve now, are complex, and it's, it's, you, we've, we've sorted out the easy stuff, and and we're left with the the sort of the difficult things, you know. People with long-term health conditions, um, 
things around it. I mean, obesity has been in the news again in this country um, this week. And it's it's just so much more complicated than a lot of people are even willing to recognise. Um, and you need all sorts of different um, you know, expertise, information, lived experience in order to really understand it and have any chance of finding that sort of point um, or intervention point that could actually truly see something transformational happening. Um, and then there's the sort of uh, challenge of we think about health at a population level, but that still doesn't mean that you're going to help every single individual. So it's got to be, um, it's got to be everybody, but it's also so much of it is around relationships. So I would always encourage, um, you know, planners who are interested to go and talk to the person in public health that's perhaps working on obesity or wider determinants of health. And, um, you know, that the public health practitioners go and befriend the planning policy officer. Yeah. And, you know, and there is this dialogue around, um, you know, this is my world. This is your world. I can upskill you and help you understand this bit of my world. And then we can see how we can work together. Um, and, you know, bringing in highways and economic development and, uh, you know, children and young people and um, older people. I mean, it's, it, it is everything. And that's that's difficult. And some people find that really hard and it turns them off because they just it's so complex. They can't wrap their head around it and it causes sort of inertia. But yeah. it is I think that's where something like the Garden City Principles or 20 Minute Neighbourhoods can actually unlock some of that because it lays out a framework for you to think, OK, it gives you a starting point. It opens a discussion. I'm going to think about these things and then you might add to them. So you're just increasing your own complexity. And that's great. You know, go right ahead. But it at least gives you a way of thinking about place in a way that it's not simplistic, um, but is holistic. And I think that's really important. Thank you. Right, so I have two a little bit philosophical questions. <laughs> uh, sorry, I. OK. Do you have me? Because yes. you've got one second person. Okay. Uh, so I I first wanted to ask you, why why do you think like such changes in our societies are considered as good to have still and not as necessity, not you know as the main thing that we are fighting for in the policy area, not as the main changes that need to be made, or even let's say in the media world, it's it's not the main things that we talk about. They are good to have, they look nice, but yeah, they are not our main focus. Um, I think there is still a tendency to towards siloed thinking and and only considering one issue at a time. And I can understand that, you know, If people are busy and just trying to get on, you know, making it through a cost of living crisis or, um, you know, dealing with ill health, it's very difficult to look upstream and to think about all of these big things that actually they may feel very powerless 
to influence and think about how you know how does that apply to me when actually I'm just really concerned about the fact that you want to put in a low traffic neighborhood or that you um you know are planning on building or developing this piece of land over there um so there's definitely uh there's definitely the case that we tend to boil things down and we make headlines out of things and we all know that you know it's much easier to make a make a headline than it is to to create something that's a well-balanced you know looks at all the arguments looks at the evidence and then comes out with an opinion um so yeah i i'm not quite sure how we got here but it's definitely a reality that we're living in um and i think you, know, you alluded to it earlier the whole sort of 20 minute neighborhood concept has got wrapped up in some really interesting other ideas around um really around lack of trust in institutions which i think had probably started before covid but got worse yeah um as people sort of tried to make sense of covid and and reacted to it in different ways um and you know this change is hard change is really difficult um and and people can be quite quite reactive to change um and so it's it's about not doing change to people yeah. but trying to do change with people yeah. um and i said it right at the very beginning it is about having a really good story to tell and having a narrative that says you know this is how great this could be yeah. um and and let's sort of try and shape the place that we live in towards that goal um, and being really honest and transparent, you know, it might be that we have to do it iteratively and we can only do one bit at a time. But it's having that vision and and sort of trying to bring from a policy point of view, trying to bring your strategies and your service delivery and everything underneath that so that people are really clear on what the goal is. And therefore, they're more resilient to the idea that you're going to be changing things to get there. So, yeah, I mean, it's. Only I had the answer, really. <laughs> I mean, it's it is something yeah, that we we all are thinking and trying to understand. Of course, there's no answer, but what you said made really a lot of sense. <laughs> and thank you for sharing that. And uh, just wanted to wrap up uh, with asking you about why are you doing the job that you're doing, and what do you hope to see. Uh, at the end of your career like what change do you hope to have made um i think i'm probably doing it because i get really frustrated that we we could <laughs> do so much better like you know we're still planning and building and living with places that are not good for us you know and we know the weight of the evidence is just overwhelming but somehow that evidence isn't making it through into what we're still choosing to do and what our policy says. Um, and so I think for me, that's it. You know, the, the TCPA's vision is for homes, places and communities in which everyone can thrive. And we are a long way from thriving. You know? um, so it really is that sort of, you know, it's that it's achievable. I truly believe it's achievable, but there's a lot of work to get us there. So I guess I hope by the end of, uh, by the end of my career, more places will be good for us you know 
that they'll be livable and walkable and green and clean and uh, that people will will be happy living in them and that it will support their health and well-being in a way that that places don't at the moment so it really is that sort of whole whole systems holistic approach to place that I hope has moved from move from what you just said it's like oh well that sounds lovely <laughs> into actually this is how we're tackling this and this is what we're actually doing um so yeah so that's what I sort of hope really it's that shift shift from from what we are doing to what we could do um and I think that's a shift for for policymakers it's a shift for people in the professions that sort of influence the built environment in particular and designers um but it's also a shift in culture as well um so yeah and I think the other thing I really hope for is that we take a really positive lens on places for children that's mm. something we've not really touched on but it's a bit of a bit of a, a subject close to my heart um is that we should be doing much much better for our children in terms of where they grow up and can they go and have independence to get to school and can they access greenery and and all that sort of stuff so yeah that's also something that I'm I hope to be able to to do more on and and push harder because you know, if you look at planning policy in England I think children are mentioned once in the planning policy framework um, and that's in relation to housing and that's it and I just think you know in terms of ways of encouraging people to to, to change I think actually children and young people as a yeah. as a way of motivating people you know it's hard to argue with we're going to make it so your child can play outside yeah well who's going to yeah who wants to argue with that so uh yeah so I think that's something that we're we're missing and we could do more around that's these are all amazing and I really hope that you can see the fruits of your work and (laughs) we can all see this happening uh thank you so much Emma is there anything else you would like to share before no, I mean, if anyone's interested, I really did a bad job on the history of the of the Garden City movement. But um, yeah, all of that, we have lots and lots of information on our website. So I'd really encourage people to go and take a look. Um, it's just tcpa.org.uk. Um, yeah, whole whole libraries of things. So yeah, please do take a look. And um, yeah, hopefully people will join, join in our mission. We're also a membership organisation, so you can join too. <laughs> Sorry for the sales pitch, but it's also yeah, possible. So. <laughs> yeah, so you can join as an individual member or if you work in an architecture practice or a, a business, you can join as a corporate member as well. Um, but yeah, you know, if, if the TCPA's sort of vision and values and, and what we want sort of chime with you, then we'd encourage you to think about that too. Thank you, Gemma. Yeah, for sure. Check Gemma's LinkedIn profile and also TCPA's website. They have lots of lots of interesting blogs. I I spent one day in the website and I was just amazed by the amount of interesting information. So make sure to check that out. And if you enjoyed what you listened to, make sure to follow us on Design to Connect on Spotify, LinkedIn, Instagram, uh, recently Twitter, YouTube, and all those the sea of different social media channels uh thank you everyone for listening and talk to you guys soon. thank you Gemma. Bye.